everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And while it's definitely now ski season in our home of Crested Butte, we're still hard at work testing bikes too. So on this episode of Bikes and Big Ideas, we figured it would be a good time to give a rundown on a lot of the bikes we've been spending time on from We Are One, Norco, Nikolai, Cannondale, and Orbea. But before we get into all that, you should also check out our new guide to visiting Crested Butte and the rest of the Gunnison Valley. Whether it's to join us for the Blister Summit in February, do some skiing some other time this winter, or come ride bikes in the spring. We've got a link in the show notes to that article, so take a look and start making plans to come pay us a visit. Okay, as I mentioned up top, we've been testing a ton of bikes recently, and there are some real standouts among the group. And while we still need some more time on a bunch of these before we're ready to put out full reviews, we figured it was a good time to check in and give you an update on a bunch of what we've been coming down the pipeline. So let's get right into it. Hey, Jonathan. Well, welcome back on Bikes and Big Ideas. It's been a while. How are you doing? It, it has been. It's a real honor to be back on Bikes and Big Ideas. Yeah, I feel like you kind of, you, you got so good at this, you just kind of shoved me out. I don't really hear anybody complaining, to be honest, <laughs> which is, you know, it's a real, it's a real kind of a ego check for me. Now, it's very fun to be back on. I'm really looking forward to talking bikes with you since I've just been skiing and we just got more snow here in Crested Butte. So I don't see that trend, you know, reversing anytime soon. So happy to be back here and uh, excited to catch up with you on some bike stuff. Yeah, it'll be good. Uh, Been awfully busy testing bikes over here. So got quite a lot to talk about. And honestly, one of the things I wanted to do and have been really looking forward to do with you, you have been having such interesting kind of, let's say, tech conversations since you and I talked to Greg Menar. And I thought it would be fun to just pick your brain a little bit and either get a sense of either some of the highlights of some of the conversations you've been having, or just have you talk about some of the things that you have found to be most significant and important in some of the conversations you've been having. Yeah, for sure. There've been a handful of uh, kind of trends and some, just some good highlights from the recent conversations. So one that I think was a really good sort of companion episode to that one that we did with Greg Menar a little while back was uh spoke with Fox's Jordy Cortez. For people who aren't familiar, he's kind of their racer assistant suspension guru who's traveling around the EWS and downhill World Cup circuits primarily, working with their athletes on suspension setup. And we touched on a little bit of this in the chat with Greg, but then got much deeper on a lot of it with Jordy. And Jordy spoke really well about sort of some of the technical aspects of suspension setup at that end. But the part of that conversation that I actually found the most interesting was that he spoke really well about sort of the more mental aspects of his job and the fact that he's having to, one, build relationships with a ton of different racers and have sort of the rapport down such that he can just get through with the information he needs to get out really quickly with them and just move on to the next person. Cause he'll be down in the tent and have 30 people come down and practice and be like, okay, I have five minutes. We got to figure this out real fast. Just be on it and have our communication dialed such that we can have this conversation quickly. But then also sort of there are times when someone will be struggling 
not feeling quite right on the bike and think that maybe just making some really dramatic wholesale changes to their suspension setup might somehow end up being the silver bullet and he kind of has to talk them down off that ledge so to speak and be like no hang on like let's not this was working before let's not get too crazy here and kind of work through the combination of sort of a technical and a mental battle and that was super interesting what else yeah so uh another really good chat i had was with mick hannah who you know, he's been on the World Cup circuit for forever, been a top level pro for most of his life. You know, we talked about him racing his first BMX world champs at age, I think it was 13, super young, just it's what he's been doing his whole life at this point. And a lot of people probably saw he announced his retirement from World Cup racing at the end of this season. And he did a good job of sort of talking about he doesn't have all of the answers for what comes next, but also doesn't feel like he needs to yet. It's, I think, just had a very good perspective on taking it one step at a time and figuring out what feels like the right thing to do from here in a sort of more organic way. But he also made it really clear that he's thought a whole lot about bikes and bike culture and just ways that he could get himself involved in a different role than being the racer that he has been for so long. And a lot of that included stuff that wasn't even necessarily related to mountain bikes. He talked a bit about bike commuting and getting more people doing that and developing infrastructure for that sort of biking as well as in addition to trail building and a whole range of other stuff like that. And just had clearly devoted a lot of thought to getting more people on bikes in a whole bunch of different ways and spoke about that very well. All right. Any other highlights on the like tech dork side of things? Yeah. So the last two episodes that I've done kind of fit together really nicely. They're both conversations with a new smaller company that has come up with a very interesting take on how to sort of reinvent the derailleur based drivetrain. The first one of those was Mick Williams of Williams Racing Products, who in a, among a whole bunch of other stuff that he talked about in that episode, a lot of which is pretty out there. He's been working on this prototype of a downhill bike that you could kind of think of as the reincarnation of the Honda RN01 from back in the day. The one that had basically a gearbox that consisted of a derailleur and cassette mounted in the middle of the frame. So rather than being out on the rear wheel, it was stuck in the middle of the front triangle and had some advantages in terms of reducing unsprung weight and having the derailleur not hang down off the back of the bike where it's vulnerable and prone to getting smashed on stuff and so on. And kind of Honda made that prototype. And as a matter of fact, Greg raced it for a bit earlier in his career before moving over to Santa Cruz. And then Honda just folded up the program and the project never went anywhere and it never became commercially available. And, uh, Mix sort of picked up the mantle on that and is working on the modernized version, which is pretty cool. It's using a SRAM axis wireless shifter and derailleur and pretty neat project that looks a whole lot like that old Honda from way back in the day, at least in that particular regard. And then the more recent one last week was with Cedric Evole of LOL Bikes, who has this very interesting concept prototype for essentially separating the two functions of a rear derailleur. You know, one, it is shifting across a cassette, and then two, it's handling chain tension as the length of chain required varies depending on gear and suspension movement and all that. And so his 
SuperDrive prototype basically has a little mini derailleur that only handles the shifting portion of the program that is tucked up above the chainstay. So it's, again, out of the way, protected from being smashed on stuff. And then it relies on a bike that's designed around the drivetrain concept and has a high pivot layout with a tension arm that's sort of tucked in behind the crank and does that part of the derailleur's duties in a total totally separate piece and um it's a pretty wild sort of reinvention of the whole concept but he's got a prototype that he built and is working with a couple of mainstream bike companies on developing frames for this and working towards bringing it to market and so we kind of ran through the whole concept and uh pretty cool pretty big idea from him there and it'll be very interesting to see if it really goes anywhere or not it's so interesting to think about like with all this kind of crazy looking stuff that's coming out in the bike world, like what's the ratio of, well, it looks crazy, but what kind of effect or bang do we actually get out of the kind of bizarro looking design? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, I think like the death of the front derailleur, I would call a very significant development you know, in modern bikes, I probably would call it not as significant as, say, the dropper post. Do you agree with that? It's close, but probably. They're both huge. Like, you'd rather still have to deal with a crappy front derailleur than have to give up your dropper post. It's tough, honestly. I mean... Wow, he's pausing. Really? I'm not giving up a dropper post. Yeah, I'd at least have to think about it a little. So the thing with the derailleur is not only do front derailleurs suck and not work very well on their own, but building bikes around them impose some pretty significant packaging restraints on suspension design and stuff. And so there are some kind of knock-on effects there, too, that would continue to make bikes worse in addition to just having a front derailleur on them. So, yeah, I think it probably really the answer is that it kind of depends a bit on the application like for more middle of the road trail bikes i'd probably be more inclined to keep the dropper and deal with the front derailleur whereas for more kind of winch and plummet enduro bikes just deal with it at the top exactly have that seat high on the because that's right you only you are in a weird part of the country where apparently you only pedal uphill for a long time and then you only slay the downhill as opposed to like the mixed bag that many of us are you know it's always a mixture of up and down yeah there's a bit of that so you actually that's why you don't care about dropper posts i forgot this as much anyway yeah fair. I mean, that's actually fair right if you're if it's all one direction and then the other not a big deal to drop the seat at the top i guess but yeah yeah exactly it's a lot more manageable to do it just a couple times over the course of a ride versus toggling the dropper post a hundred times and in those sorts of terrain you definitely would miss it a lot more but okay so putting you on the spot then with this question and then i'll shut up and we can talk about some of the actual bikes you've been riding but you know this is my chance this is my chance with the different conversations you've been having and let's also include in this mix the really interesting conversation about the patent stuff where we're kind of actually getting a glimpse at what might be coming down the pike. What are you seeing or what's your best guess about the most significant developments that 
I don't honestly know if anything can rival like the death of the front derailleur, the dropper post. I don't know what else we could be doing to have those kind of game changing effects, but maybe I just simply lack the imagination here. What, what, what would you wager on? Let's not just guess. Let's make you, you know, actually put your own hard earned money on in terms of where the most significant effect would be coming from. I guess it depends how you want to look at most significant effect. I mean, I think one thing that is pretty clear is that we're going to be seeing a lot more electrification of stuff on bikes. And I don't necessarily mean e-bikes with electronics for propulsion, but just electronic suspension and more electronic shifting and more electronic dropper posts and probably a lot of integration of a whole bunch of those things where you can have stuff like when you lower your dropper post, it also changes the lockout on your shock and whatever else. So I think that stuff is pretty clearly coming and going to get a lot more sophisticated in the years to come, whether or not that will be as, quote unquote, game changing as the dropper and losing the front trailer. I'm a little skeptical, but it will definitely make some real impacts on the experience of riding a bike. If for nothing else that you have to now think about having your shifter charged and all that kind of stuff. And I'm being a little flippant there. There's definitely some possibility for it to make real positive improvements too. There's some ways that that could be pretty cool. I don't think the tech is quite there yet, but it's clearly coming and I have no doubt that it's going to improve immensely in the years to come. And I mean, frankly, the options for these different derailleur based sort of drivetrains seem really cool too. I think one of the things that Cedric and I talked about quite a bit was that we keep sort of hearing people being like, oh, gearboxes are coming for mountain bikes. It's going to be in five years. You're not going to buy a bike with a derailleur. And it keeps not happening, I think, in large part because they're just they're heavy and not nearly as efficient as a chain and derailleur. And so both these ideas from Williams Racing Products and Law Bikes seem like really good ways to get a lot of the benefits of a gearbox, but still keep the efficiency you get out of a chain and derailleur and kind of blend the two in a way that frankly seems more promising than gearboxes have up to this point. So if those go somewhere, they could be pretty big deals too. So as we continue to see electric mountain bikes take more market share, which I believe they will, does that increase the likelihood of the gearbox takeover? I think it does at least for e-bikes, you know, you, the weight and inefficiency that you, that are bigger drawbacks on a fully pedal powered bike become not irrelevant, but certainly less significant on an e-bike. And so I could see that having an impact there. On the other hand, it also seems pretty likely the case to me that when you're trying to stuff a motor in there already, then also fitting a gearbox on top of that gets hard. And so maybe that ends up being the limiting factor where, well, actually it turns out it's easier just to have the derailleur and cassette on the rear wheel where they're not fighting for space with the motor and battery and all that. And it doesn't happen. So I could see that going either way, kind of for those reasons. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> fighting for space now. Yeah. I mean, you already see that on e-bikes. Like there are a ton of bikes out there where, there's the quote-unquote conventional version of the bike, and then they make an e-bike version of it, but then also have to completely redo the suspension layout and all kinds of other stuff to deal with the packaging issues. And so adding a gearbox in there also certainly doesn't make that any easier. 
Interesting. Well, I appreciate, you know, letting me pick your brain and getting your thoughts. And I think we might be ready to actually just move on to some of the stuff you've been writing and, and, and putting more time on. Cause I know a number of these things you have actually already talked about on previous episodes of bikes and big ideas, but anything else before we turn the page? No, I think we can get into the bikes now. Okay. Where do you want to start? So first up, let's talk about the We Are One Arrival. And this is one of the ones that I have talked about a little bit on here uh, in episode 90, the last reviewer reports we did. I just started spending time on it then and have since ridden it a lot more and kind of have a more fleshed out take on it. And actually, in fact, the full review of that bike just went live on the site. So that's up for people to check out, too. So in short, it's We Are One's first bike. It's a 150 rear travel 29er with a 160 travel fork that's kind of meant to be a relatively aggressive bike, but a whole bunch more versatile than the most sort of game on biggest enduro bikes out there. They're still aiming to have it keep a fair bit of trail bike versatility, and they've done a really good job of that and done it in a way that has a pretty interesting and somewhat unique ride feel compared to a lot of other bikes that are in a similar category in terms of travel and geometry and whatnot thinking stuff like the gorilla gravity smash and the uh canyon spectral and a bunch of other kind of 140 150-ish travel bikes the arrival is way 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 more lively and poppy feeling it's a bike that just really wants to jump over little terrain features every little kind of root ball or little gap that you can find. It just wants to get light and skip over them. And But what's interesting about it is that it does that without feeling harsh exactly. The suspension, it does really prefer a pretty firm supportive setup. We Are One recommends running only about 20% rear sag on the bike. And I found that running the fork comparatively stiff to match that was what worked best on it also, just to keep the two ends feeling relatively balanced but and so it's a bike that i think probably works best for fairly skilled fairly aggressive riders who are willing to have not the most plush compliant feeling suspension but are willing to trade that off for a bike that just feels that lively and uh it's kind of more it requires a little bit more precision just because it's not a super cushy plow over everything kind of bulldozer. But for that sort of person, it's really impressive, really fun. And it is super versatile in the sense that it doesn't take a super steep, rowdy trail for it to feel exciting. You don't have to be going a thousand miles an hour for it to feel like it's working, but it's less versatile in sort of the sense of what sort of riders are going to like it. It's not the kind of bike where you're going to just put most people on it and maybe say they're not going to hate it. But for the right person, it's really special and is frankly one of the very favorite bikes that I've tested this year for me personally. It's really cool. I was surprised with that punchline coming from you. I thought you just would like whatever the heaviest, most slacked out bike on the market was. So yeah, this did not strike me as you were talking as a David Golay bike. No, I I like it a whole lot. I think that it is it's not the bike I would choose to be the biggest bike in my quiver, but if I had something above it, it would make a ton of sense as sort of the mellower option in there and in that role I like it a ton. 
And just to clarify for people, right? So you're saying the the We Are One arrival, it's 150 in the back, 160 up front. I mean, you know, I don't know, in Colorado, that's considered a decent amount of suspension. So when you're talking about it's maybe not the most plush thing, can you help put that into a bit more context? Like, because honestly, when you were talking about this, I found myself thinking about the Yeti SB130, which is like, wait, that's a category mistake. But like, I think that that's a bike. It's not the most plush thing. I think people that are more skilled pilots get along better with that bike. If you want a more forgiving or plush feel, I don't think that's the best bike in its class. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. As you're talking, we're talking about bikes in two very different categories of suspension. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. And I think there are some similarities in sort of the end of the spectrum that they trend towards in terms of feel the arrival is definitely more bike than the 130 you know longer travel it's slacker and longer in wheelbase etc cetera, etc cetera. but thinking about the uh arrival as maybe being kind of a bigger version of the sb 130 with somewhat similar feel i think is on to something and now of course there's there is the Yeti SB150, which would be the obvious comparison, but I haven't written right. it much, so I don't have a very good answer there. But then, yeah, to put it into some context of more similar classes of bikes, like, for example, the Smash that I just talked about is definitely quite a bit more kind of planted and plush feeling than the Arrival is, but also less lively and poppy. I'd say similar things about the High Tower and the Canyon Spectral is maybe a little bit more of a middle ground between the the two ends of it. But the arrival is pretty far on the lively poppy end of that spectrum for the class of bike that it occupies. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you for my always annoying contextual questions, especially when I bring up bikes that are in a completely different sort of category. But, you know, it gets us to a good place, I think. So, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Apologies slash you're welcome. Where are we going next? So next up is a bike at the completely opposite end of the spectrum in terms of feel, and that's the Norco range. So that's their 170, 170 travel, high pivot, enduro 29er. And it's basically just an absolute sledgehammer of a bike in the middle. So I've been testing the C2 build, which is kind of their mid-range option. It's... uh a RockShox Zeb Ultimate and a Fox DHX2 Factory Shock, SRAM GX build, etc. Kind of mid-range stuff, aluminum wheels and so on. Uh, it's really heavy. It's pushing, it's over 39 pounds with pedals on it in that build. And it is extremely planted. The suspension's outstanding. It pedals really poorly. It's kind of a tank. And so it is everything that the arrival is not basically and so super super different but for the right sort of person i think it's a pretty interesting option and in the flash review of that bike that we published a little while ago one of the things i was pondering and hadn't totally made up my mind on was whether it was a bike that i was sort of willing to put up with as the big bike in my personal quiver given that i absolutely love the way it descends if you have something really steep and fast to point it down but it's also 
pretty inefficient, kind of brutal to take on some bigger, longer pedally rides. And I was trying to decide if I thought that was a trade-off I would be willing to live with. And I basically, having spent more time on it now, have concluded that at least as my quiver is currently constructed, the answer is no. It's just too much bike, too inefficient, and doesn't quite work for me in that role personally. But for someone who, for example, is riding a lot of bike park, but then wants a bike that they can both do that and then pedal on sometimes, it would be great. And in fact, I actually just sort of talked Noah Bodman into buying one. We were chatting a really? little bit. Yeah. And the uh, line he used was, I want the closest thing to a DH bike that you can still kind of pedal on. And I'm like, well, that's the range. Interesting. Okay. And we should say, I mean, you you have talked about this, but we might as well do it again. Talk a little bit about some of your favorite rides in Seattle, you know, so and because you're saying like for the stuff that I would be, I meaning you would be riding the most climbs like this for your personal opinion. It's it's a bit too much on the way up. Yeah. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but most of the riding I'm doing, I'm either climbing a pretty mellow climbing trail or even just a fire road and doing that for several thousand feet of elevation and then going pretty much straight back down on a, a often fairly steep trail. And by the way, the, all the people that like go actually ride with you end up just saying things like, what the hell? That was terrifying. <laughs> kind of awesome, but mostly scary. Like that's Cy Whitling. That was Dylan Wood. So just to provide a little bit of context, I guess. Yeah. So definitely mostly riding pretty steep, fast stuff. And the range feels spectacular on the way back down on that kind of stuff. But it's it's just more work to get back up to the top than I would want to deal with in the sort of everyday role for that kind of thing. I mean, I've ridden quite a few of the kind of modern class of 170-ish travel enduro bikes. And the range is just more bike than just about all of them, even in that fairly narrow window. I was actually a little surprised at the extent to which that was true. You know, it's it looks like a big burly bike on paper, and it certainly is, but they pushed the needle a little farther there than I thought they might, for both better and worse, depending on what you want to do with it. Where do you want to go next? Well, so to draw sort of a comparison of another one of those 170-ish travel enduro bikes, uh, let's talk about the Nikolai G1 a little bit. So I did talk a little bit about this one too, uh, or my impressions of it when I spoke with Chris Porter, who had a big hand in developing that bike back in episode 80. But at that point, I'd only had, I think, two or three rides on the bike and hadn't really figured it out super well yet. So that is another similar travel bike. It's got a sort of flip chip, so you can run in either 162 or 175 millimeters of rear wheel travel. And it's designed for about a 170 travel fork, which is how I've run it thus far. And it's Nikolai's Geometron bike, the kind of evolution of that line from them. And so it's an especially long slack bike, something that kind of one of it was really one of the pioneering bikes in that realm, but actually doesn't look particularly out of line with a bunch of stuff in that category. Now, it's just like they started doing this five years ago and the rest of the world kind of caught up. But 
Uh, one of the things that's interesting with it is that it's got an enormous amount of adjustability in terms of both geometry and wheel sizes. So there are a couple different sets of, they call them mutators, that you can put into both the seat stays and the chain stays to change the different lengths of them relative to each other. And so between various ways of mixing and matching there, you can run it in either full 29er or mullet or full 27.5 configurations and have a pretty good chunk of adjustability of the geometry in any of those three wheel size configurations also. And so it's been kind of a lot to uh, work through on testing, just having a whole lot to experiment with and um, kind of figure out what works on it. But thus far, what I'm actually kind of concluding is that I get along best with it in the full 29er, uh, basically the stock geometry for the full 29er setup and so it's still super long and slack it's a 62 and a half degree head tube angle and a 495 millimeter reach in the size that i'm riding and that's with 446 millimeter chain stays so it's a very long very slack bike but it pedals remarkably well actually it's for i mean for what it is, obviously, we're talking, that's a caveat, to be sure. <laughs> Compared to the range. Compared to the range, for example, it pedals way better. We're talking very relative things here, but for what it is, it pedals quite well, and it's a pretty different feel from the range on the way back down, too. It's very stable, largely because of just how long it is, but the suspension doesn't feel quite as planted and glued to the ground as the range it's a little more lively and a little easier to throw around despite being huge uh just because it's not as it's largely down to the suspension performance basically the range just feels extremely glued to the ground and does not want to pop over stuff at all and the g1 is a little bit more middle of the road there in terms of suspension performance and so on so that is actually the bike that i do personally own as the the big bike in my current quiver. And I think it is a better fit there than the range, mostly just because it is so much more efficient and I'm much happier taking that on a big ride where I'm climbing 6,000 feet in a day or something than the range, which would just be brutal trying to do that much pedaling on it. So been getting along really well with it. Did a whole bunch of experimenting where I was trying mullet configurations and a ton of different geometry settings and kind of just circled back to actually full 29er and the, the stock geo is what works they had it figured out but if you want to get weird and do a lot of experimenting it has got more options than just about anything else out there so it's you can try it if you want but i've I've come back around full circle on it and i'm liking it a whole lot it's impressive what about for the bike park would you say range versus the g1 comes down more to what type of feel you're looking for out of your ride as opposed to like, oh, no, the range is sort of just definitely better in a park. Yeah, I think it would depend on what sort of feel you want out of it. The range is more planted if you're looking for something that feels a bit more like a DH race bike that you can still pedal. That's the range. The G1 is a little more lively, a little less plush. Pick your poison. Pick your poison. Okay. Where to next? 
So now we'll kind of move into a couple bikes that I've started spending time on more recently and have not yet talked about on here. So first up is the Cannondale Jekyll. It's their new 165 rear travel, 170 front high pivot enduro bike. And it's a pretty interesting foil to the range, actually. They're both high pivot enduro bikes with similar travel numbers. Range is a little bit longer in slacker, but the geometry is not super far off either. And despite those similarities, they feel very, very different. The Jekyll is a lot lighter, pedals a lot better, much more versatile all-rounder, but not nearly the bulldozer that the range is. And so it's that probably makes the Jekyll a better option for more people, frankly. But depending what you want out of your bike, it depends. So that's been been an interesting one. And something that I've also found interesting about the range and Jekyll both is that when I reviewed the Forbidden Dreadnought earlier this year, another high pivot enduro bike, I found that that felt very good going real fast in a straight line and just plowing over stuff, but also exhibited some significant weirdness in the way it handled, particularly when you were in a fairly well-supported corner and kind of loading up the suspension in that corner. It just felt like the rear end grew so dramatically on that bike that your balance point on it shifted because the rear wheel is moving away from you and you kind of had to almost time a little bit of a rearward body shift to keep the two wheels weighted evenly and have it corner well. And so I was kind of wondering if that was just going to continue to be true of these other high pivot enduro bikes that do have a substantially more rearward axle path by dint of having that high pivot layout. And frankly, it's not been the case for either the range or the Jekyll. They both feel way more normal in that regard, uh, but while still picking up some of the benefits that you get from the high pivot suspension in terms of bump absorption and stuff. So the Jekyll's actually been a surprisingly versatile feeling bike, given what it is. Obviously, it's still a fairly burly long travel bike. It's not like it's the first thing I'm going to recommend for people who are trying to go do huge pedally trail bike days. But relative to those other big high pivot enduro bikes, it is substantially more versatile and a little closer to being an everyday trail bike if you still want something that's pretty long travel and hard charging. Do you have a take on why it might feel different than the Dreadnought? Yeah, so I I think it kind of comes down to two things. One is just that the Dreadnought's chainstays are longer to start with, and so it's already pretty long and it gets longer. The Dreadnought, I think, also has a little bit more rearward axle path than either the range or the Jekyll. So you have more growth in addition to starting from somewhere longer. And then the third thing is that the suspension leverage curve on the Dreadnought is overall pretty progressive if you look at the relative sort of starting and end points. But most of that progression happens very late in the travel. And so the kind of through the mid-stroke, it stays the leverage stays a lot higher and so it's a little bit softer through the midstroke a little less supportive and so when you're loading it up into a corner like that i think it does just settle deeper into the travel also which then leads to more 
chain stay length growth because it's just more rearward the farther you get into it. And if you're compressing the suspension more, you get more of that growth happening in that circumstance where you're loading it up into a corner. And so all of that added up to the kind of weirdness that I felt on the dreadnought, that is. But the Jekyll and range have not. We ready to move on to our last bicycle? I think so. So the last one I have on the list here is the Orbea Occam LT, which is a pretty different bike than most of what we've been talking about so far. It's uh, the LT's long travel, obviously, but it's still the Orbea's kind of middle of the range trail bike. So the LT version of the Occam has 150 travel at both ends, and then the standard one is 140. It's the same frame, but they accomplish the change by putting a longer fork on it and then a slightly longer stroke rear shock. And the LT builds come with a burlier fork and bigger tires and so on to sort of accompany that change. But overall, it's a considerably kind of steeper, more compact, more trail bikey kind of thing. And in fact, Orbea is very clear about that in their marketing. They say the Occam LT is all caps, not a mini Rayon, the Rayon being their actual enduro bike. And so they're clearly marketing as being something that is efficient and pretty quick first and foremost. And then you can choose if you want the version that's a little bit beefed up and has a little more suspension travel or not. And that just showed up. I only have one ride on it so far, but the early impression is that that's pretty spot on. It's It pedals really, really well. It's super quick, very efficient, a lot of fun on kind of more mellow rolling terrain and does seem like it's going to be a little less stable and capable if you're on something super steep and really trying to charge hard on it. But for people who are looking for something that is a lot lighter, a lot more efficient and a lot more fun on less than the gnarliest of terrain possible, it seems like a pretty cool option. It's just a different category of bike. Shout out to Orbea for truth and advertising. We love that type of thing around here. Yeah, so well done there. But, and I've been talking to a lot of people lately about bikes and kind of helping them think through, you know, the how much suspension should I go with? And so I guess I'll put the question to you about the Occam LT. Like with what you're describing I guess the question is, why not just drop down to a bike with, say, 130 millimeters of travel in the back and the front or a 130 rear, 140 up front? Like, can you really make the case for why go with a, I don't know, firmish feeling 150? Yeah, for sure. I think... That firmish feeling 150 is still going to be quite a bit more plush and forgiving than the 130, 140 bike that you just described. And so even if it's not the most cushy, hard-charging 150 bike, which it certainly isn't, uh, I think for people who want quite a bit more efficiency than a lot of longer travel trail bikes, but also don't want something that feels quite as uh, 
harsh and unforgiving as the shorter travel options, it's a pretty cool middle ground. I think it does sort of split the difference in a way that will definitely work for quite a few people. Okay. So there is enough difference there for it to not simply be like, dude, you might as well just drop in the amount of suspension you're looking like. You do feel like, yeah, it occupies a slot where you can make that case. I mean, I haven't been on the bike, so hence why I'm asking. Yeah, no, it's a fair question, but I do think that it's a middle ground that will work for certain people anyway. It's not like it is just totally giving up the suspension performance of a 150 travel bike to add some efficiency. And so, yeah, it's, it, it does occupy a real middle ground. I think that was our work for the day. Do you care to leave us with any teasers of some of the stuff you're going to be getting on? Or are you keeping that to yourself for the moment? Yeah, like I said, have quite a slate of bikes rolling in here. The next thing that should be showing up is the Score 4060 LT. That's the new spinoff from BMC that's making more aggressive mountain bikes and should be getting their kind of longer travel enduro bike, I think, tomorrow, actually. That's coming real soon. And... uh. I guess I'll leave it there. There's some more stuff in the pipeline too, but we'll start with that one. Okay. See, I try, I ask, I only get so much. It's just how it is now around here, but you know, it's okay. I'll just stay tuned like everybody else waiting for your flash reviews, but no, man, this has been good. Always fun to catch up on this stuff. And you've been just killing it on the site in cranking out first looks and flash reviews and the like. So we're really psyched on, um, what you've been doing on the on the bike side of things a blister and yeah i like our squad i like our squad currently yeah thanks and we do have a really good team of people over here so it's been good really enjoying it well hey man appreciate it i'll let you get back to your day thanks for taking the time and um do i get to take us off or i'm the guest technically so is my do i have to let you yeah i don't know you're stepping on my toes here man uh (laughs) This has been fun, though. It's always good to chat, and uh, let's not make it quite so long next time. Okay, sounds good. Talk to you soon. (laughs) See ya. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and if you enjoyed this conversation, then please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Jonathan for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. And from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.